We have come this morning to worship Jesus who came in the flesh. We have come here this morning to worship Jesus, the one who saved us. And so let's go now to the Lord and ask him for his help as we look to the Bible. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you not fundamentally to bring you something that you need, but we come to you most fundamentally because we are in need of you. And we need you every hour, every moment. We need you perhaps especially now as we look to your word. We know that everyone in this room who has trusted your son has done that because of your grace and your love for us. And we know that if we are going to rightly understand your word and if we're going to rejoice over it, this morning and rejoice over what Christ has done and trust in him, that too will happen because of your grace. And so we pray that you would give it. We pray that you would come by your spirit and fill me as the preacher so that I might be helpful to these dear people. And we pray for all of us as we sit under the word that you would give us hearts that would love your word and give us eyes to see truth and ears to hear. We pray that you would continue to sustain our faith in Christ through the preached word. And we pray that you would even impart faith to those who may not yet believe. We pray for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I think that I am at least in some ways attempting to do some catechizing of our congregation when I say what I'm about to say. And I'm somewhat unapologetic about it. You've heard me say this a lot of times in the last, I don't know, six to 12 months. The Bible is about what? You can probably complete my sentence. The Bible is about God's plan of redemption accomplished through Jesus, applied by the Holy Spirit, all to the praise of the glory of God. I will continue to say that because I know that I and the other um, brothers who are in leadership here at this church, we believe that wholeheartedly. I know that you do too, that we rejoice in the fact that the Bible mostly and fundamentally is about Christ. It points to him and what God has done through him. Jesus came to accomplish redemption. He came to accomplish salvation. So in that sense, it is entirely right and appropriate to say that Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is the good news. His person, meaning who he is, and his work, meaning what he did, is the good news. So there is nothing more important for a church or for a Christian than what we believe about Jesus. It's the most important thing. It is the primary thing that we could ever consider together. Yes, we we care about all of God's word because it's all inspired by the Holy Spirit. So there's none of it that's irrelevant, right? We want to submit ourselves by God's grace to every word of it. And it is also true to say that Christ is the center and therefore he is the most important thing that we could ever consider from the scripture. And so it shouldn't surprise us when we read the letters of the New Testament the epistles, as they're called. It should not surprise us that the apostles over and over and over again 
doggedly defend the person and the work of Christ. In most every letter that's written, there is this subject matter dealt with. Who is Christ? What did he accomplish? And the apostles, they absolutely will drive stakes in the ground all day long about those things. And as we come back to the letter of 1 John this morning, we're going to see John do that. He is for the second time in this letter going to be quite clear about certain aspects of Christ's person and work in terms of who he is and what he did and why it is so important for the church. Remember that John's letter is written to comfort and assure the redeemed. We've thought a lot about that. And it would be the assumption of many, because as we talk about the person and the work of Jesus, inevitably we're talking about doctrine, talking about teaching, truth claims, right? It would be the assumption of many in like our broader church contexts that like the last place that you would ever go to comfort a believer is to give them doctrine. It's just cold, it's heady, right? It's intellectual, whatever the straw man arguments that are often made. Surely there's something that's a little bit more warm and fuzzy that might comfort Christians to which we would say nothing could be further from the truth. Doctrine, truth, especially truth about God and about Christ and about how he redeems us and truth about us and about salvation and all these things. Those are the greatest comfort in the world for the believer. So I hope that that becomes, if possible, I hope that becomes even more clear to us today as we look to God's word together. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, open them up to 1 John chapter 4. That's right, we've only got two chapters to go in this letter of 1 John. We will be looking today at verses 1 through 6 of 1 John chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible with you, don't sweat it. We will get the verses of the text up here on the screen so that you can follow along. You will be helped to be able to look at the words as we go through it together. So now I'm going to read these six verses for us, and then we will consider them more in depth in the rest of our time. This is the word of God. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know, the spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word today and every day. So I have a two-part message for us today. In the first part, we will go verse by verse through the passage. We've done this once or twice in 1 John, where we'll go verse by verse and look at it together, try to understand it and wrestle with what's there. And then in the second portion of the sermon, the second part of the sermon, I have four takeaways, four takeaways for us from the text. So if you're asking, okay, well, what do I do with this? Like, what are the things that maybe are pertinent to me uh, in thinking about my life? I hope to at least offer four uh, in the second portion of our time together today. So we'll start right away with part one. The text, let's consider it. Let's put our eyes 
on verse one. Remember the context of this letter? False teaching, right, is abounding in this particular church situation. There were no doubt a number of spiritual people. You're going to see John tell his beloved, his loved ones, people he cares for, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. For many false prophets, false teachers have gone out into the world. No doubt there were a number of spiritual people, preachers and prophets who were proclaiming false things to these believers. John, as we have thought about many times, his primary exhortations to this group of Christians are mainly three. Keep trusting in Christ. Continue to strive after righteousness. Keep loving one another. And when it comes to that first part, keep trusting Jesus. Keep abiding in Christ. Keep believing what? The message that you heard from us. The message that you have heard from the beginning. So that trusting Christ piece It is inextricably linked to the truth about Jesus. So when we even talk here at CBC about trusting Christ, that's not some ethereal, like sentimental thing. This is a real, like flesh and blood. He was and is a man, right? And God, we're going to think more about this together. But this is based upon specific truth claims that the scripture makes about Christ. It's not just oh, well, you know, I kind of like to think of Jesus this way or I like to think of Jesus that way or when I think of Jesus in that way, it makes me feel this way. That really matters not. What matters is who is he? What has the scripture said about him? And that's what we're trusting. That's who we are trusting. So in this paragraph, John, just like he did towards the end of chapter two, is going to speak again of truth about Jesus. Trust him and here's what We need to know about him. Beloved, don't believe every spirit. So let's just kind of hit the pause button for a second. There are spiritual realities in the world. Like we know that. There are spiritual realities in the world that are behind and underneath other things that happen. I don't know that many people, even in our current culture, would deny that reality just out of hand. Because most people have this sort of like innate, we all have an innate desire, but most people in spite of themselves like to talk and think in these spiritual ways. Even if they're not religious, they're spiritual, right? So most every human being is going to acknowledge this reality that there are spiritual things going on underneath the things that happen. Particularly in view here when John will talk about do not believe every spirit. He's talking specifically about prophecy, about preaching, about proclamation, about teaching. Don't believe everything that's preached. Don't believe everything that's proclaimed or taught. Don't believe everything that's said, even in the name of God. Because there are some whack things that are said in the name of God. Do not believe, maybe even more specifically, as he's talking about, don't believe every spirit. Do not believe every teacher or preacher who claims to have authority. But, he says... Test the spirits to see whether they are from God. So we need to evaluate things, in other words, that are preached and taught. That's one of the reasons why we preach sermons here at CBC with the Bible. So we can look at it so that you can be like, hey, excuse me, I I don't see anything that you're saying there. That's what we should be doing. We want to do this in the light. Evaluate what's being preached and taught to determine if these things are from God. 
And we test it, of course, according to the word, and we'll think more about that. The reason, John says, the end of verse one, you can see, do this. Don't believe every spirit, but test them to see if they're from God, because for many false prophets have gone out. Many false teachers have gone out into the world. So let's wrap our minds around this, because I know sometimes for Christians in our context, we can be a little bit unsettled by the fact that there are even so many different churches in the world. There are so many different denominations. There are so many different strains of teaching. There are so many different crazy things that are said in the name of God, which we just acknowledge. And that can unsettle us at points. Like, why is it this way? Well, beloved, I care for you. And I want to say from scripture to you this morning, look at, look at the book. From the very beginning of when the gospel started to be preached, false prophets immediately show up. From the time that the gospel began to be preached 2,000 years ago, false teachers and false prophets immediately show up on the scene. This is not something that's just developed over the course of hundreds and hundreds of years. It was like this from the jump. From the start, there had been false teachers as soon as the gospel was proclaimed. And this continues on to today. So part of John's message, you're going to see here later in the text, and we'll think more about this, like don't be afraid and don't be unsettled, right? The one who is in you is greater than the one who's in the world. The one who's in you is greater than the spirit, Satan, right? Who is behind and underneath false teaching, the spirit of antichrist. Take heart, don't be unsettled. We'll think more about that. Let's put our eyes now on verse two. According to John, he's going to tell us what an absolutely fundamental test of the truthfulness of a prophecy is. Let's look at this. By this, he says, you know the spirit of God. And he's going to tell us. By this, you know if teaching is legitimate. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So let's unpack that a little bit. Why is he stressing this, the reality of Christ coming in the flesh? Why is he stressing that reality? One, specifically situated to this church context, as we've thought about, is the kind of false teaching that was going on, right? So two different things that we want to think about here very briefly. We've thought about the very philosophical kind of proto-Gnostic thought that existed in this church where there was this dualism, physical plane and a spiritual plane and all that business. There was an emphasis of spiritual things over physical things. There was, it was taught inherent corruption and wickedness in physical things in a way that there wasn't in spiritual things. And so, of course, it's crazy to think that Jesus came in the flesh. But then also there is this false teaching that was prevalent in the first century plus of the church's existence that we considered a number of weeks ago called docetism. And I'll just remind you of what that is. Docetism from the Greek word dokeo, meaning to seem or to appear. There were many who taught that Jesus only seemed to be physical, that he only appeared to be physical. Because the idea of God becoming man always has been scandalous. I think sometimes in our day, it's interesting. We wrestle more with Christ's deity sometimes than we do his humanity. I don't know what that says about us in our narcissism. But it's always been a difficult thing for people to wrap their minds around how in the world can the holy, perfect God, God, the son, the second person of the Trinity, take on human flesh. 
How could this be? It's always been a mind blower. And so people sought to harmonize that tension, to dissolve that tension and say, well, he wasn't really fully, truly human. He just looked like that. He manifested himself in a way that appeared physical, but he wasn't physical. So John is speaking to some of these errors. At a more high level, why does he make a big deal about Jesus coming in the flesh? Well, it's because to confess that Jesus came in the flesh is to confess Christ's true humanity. It's to confess and to herald that that God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, took on an entire and a complete human nature. So this, again, this is doctrine and this really matters for you. Like this will matter for you on Wednesday morning in terms of how in the world do I have peace with God? It's because Jesus assumed an entire and a complete human nature. So he had and has a true human body, real, physical, flesh and blood body. We've sung about it already today. We're going to be thinking about it more as our time goes on this morning. He had, here's another one. He had and has a true human inner being. Like true and complete. So inner man, we're talking mind, heart, soul, spirit, all that stuff. Jesus had an entire human inner being. It's not as though he had a human body and his spirit was divine. Like this again is like, whoa. So he's a truly human being and at the same time, God. Like, wow, the hypostatic union, as it's called in theological terms, blow your mind. We don't understand it fully, but we know that the scripture teaches clearly that he is one person, Jesus Christ, two natures, truly human, truly God. But then kind of more broadly again, why is John emphasizing? By this you know the Spirit of God. By this you know the truth. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. It's because here is, here is the good confession. If I'm going to summarize it like in three points here. A good confession about the Lord Jesus. First of all, he came, as you see John said, he came from where? Heaven. That is, he's truly God. He came from someplace. He left the glories of heaven, his father's throne above and came down. So he's truly God. He came in the flesh. That is, he's truly man. And he came to accomplish his mission. That is the salvation of God's people. That is the good confession. He came from heaven. He hails from there. He came in the flesh. He's truly man. And he came to accomplish his mission, the salvation of God's people. Let's look at verse three. John now is going to give us the flip side of this. If we know that every spirit who confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, now verse 3, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. You can sort of insert brackets. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus came in the flesh is not from God. That's understood, right, and assumed in the verse. So that means that any spirit that produces teaching, prophecy, Preaching that does not confess that Jesus came in the flesh is not from God. In fact, John says, you can see it here. He goes on. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. And with respect to the Antichrist, as we thought about a number of weeks ago, 
He states that his hearers had heard that the Antichrist was coming. And he says, and now is in the world already. You've heard it was coming. The spirit of the Antichrist is in the world already. As we considered a few weeks ago, I just want to do this briefly again. There are many types of the Antichrist in the world. So the Bible does both. We'll present many types of the Antichrist that have been in the world for a long time, namely since Christ came. And the Bible also at the same time seems to indicate that a very climactic Antichrist figure will come near the end of history, at the end of the age. Both are true. We should not be surprised by that, as we've thought about many times before, because of how prophecy works in the Scripture. When a prophecy is made, there are sometimes immediate fulfillments. They happen very quickly, short arc. Then there are the not-so-immediate fulfillments, longer term, longer arc. And then even beyond that, there are ultimate fulfillments, like forever and ever, new heavens and the new earth kind of stuff. So that is helpful for us as we always come to Scripture and we see prophecy. Okay, like there can be an immediate fulfillment, a longer term fulfillment, and an ultimate fulfillment of one prophecy. And that's true even of the Antichrist. I hope that's helpful to you. So John is very clear. To deny that Jesus came in the flesh, that he was truly human, is to set yourself in direct opposition to the Spirit of God. And is to set yourself in direct opposition to the testimony that God has given about his Son. In other words, it's to align yourself with hell, with Satan. I mean, this is an all or nothing proposition. There's no compromise here. Let's look at verse 4. John's going to shift a little bit. He's just told them to be discerning, to test the spirits. Here's how you know if something is legitimate or not. But now he will speak to them in a very tender way. Little children. It's a term of endearment that he's used a number of times. He tells them, you are from God. You're from God and you have overcome them. Who's them? Those who have the spirit of Antichrist. It's very clear. And we've said this a number of times. It's very clear that John knows who he's writing to. He's writing to Christians to the redeemed and it's clear too that he is seeking to comfort them and protect them he's watching over them as a shepherd as a big brother little children you are from God and you have overcome them yes you have been bombarded by false teaching yes there are many false prophets who have gone out in the world and do not be unsettled you're from God and you have overcome them why how have you overcome them He tells us, for because he who is in you, the Holy Spirit, God, is greater than he who is in the world, namely Satan, the spirit of Antichrist. God is greater. Therefore, you have overcome. So if we were to fight the battle in our own power, it would be all over for us immediately. The game would be over before it started. Like there's always that joke, you know, like in sports when there's a huge mismatch. You know, and then a big upset happens. Like, that's why they play the games, you know. Sometimes when you hear people talk about a game that's going to happen, it's like, well, I don't even know why they're going to play. Because clearly, 100 times out of 100, this team's going to win. It would be like that for us. It would be over before it started if we had to do this in our own strength. But it is because that we fight in Christ's power and we fight with the weapons of God. And we fight in the grace of God with the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God, that we will overcome. No matter how the enemy may attack, in the Lord we will triumph. And that says nothing about us. It says everything about Him and His work through us. Let's look at verse 5. 
He's going to continue. They are from the world. Again, those who have the spirit of Antichrist, they're from the world, from the fallen, corrupt aspect of the world. Therefore, they speak from the world. And the world listens to them. They speak in a way the world understands. They think the way the world thinks. They value what the world values. And so the world listens to them. It only makes sense. So in other words, this is another good sort of grounding verse for us to consider. Put some rock under your feet for a minute. Do not be surprised and certainly do not be unsettled that many, many, many people listen to false teaching and believe it and buy it. Hook, line, and sinker. We shouldn't be shocked. The miracle is when somebody actually rejects false teaching and believes the truth of God in the gospel. So John, again, he's grounding his hearers here. Don't be afraid. The one who's in you is greater. It's going to be fine. The battle's over. And don't be unsettled by the fact that people are buying into false teaching and leaving the church and abandoning you. This is unfortunately normal in a fallen world. Let's look at verse six together. Now John is going to shift a little bit. He's going to say, we are from God. We, I would understand in this context to be the apostles and other faithful teachers, right? We, he's already said, you are from God. He's saying we now are from God. And you can kind of tell that he's talking about apostles and teachers. Whoever knows God, he goes on. Whoever knows God listens to us. So whoever knows God listens to the apostolic testimony, the apostolic witness, the message that you have heard from the beginning. Those who know God believe that. Listen to that. Whoever knows God believes the gospel. It's interesting how that's worded. We'll think about that in a minute. He goes on though. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. In other words, whoever is not from God, not of God, does not listen to the apostolic witness. Rejects it. So in other words, whoever is not from God does not believe the gospel. That's how he writes it. And then he will conclude this section, this paragraph, by putting another by this statement that is looking backward to the things that he's just written. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This is how we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. By what someone says and believes about Christ. What's the testimony that they're giving? Are they saying things that are in alignment with the message that you have heard from the beginning? Are they saying things that are in alignment with the message you have heard from us, the apostles? Or are they saying something different? This is how we'll discern the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. If they're saying what we've been saying about Christ and confess him to have come in the flesh to accomplish salvation, then they are of the truth. If they're saying something different, they're not. It's pretty straightforward. You have your Bibles in front of you. I think you can see that just as easily as I can. So now I want to move us into our second portion of the sermon where we're going to think about four takeaways. And we're going to continue to look to the text as we do, as we do this. Takeaway number one. These headings aren't clever. Forgive me. Number one, the importance of Jesus coming in the flesh. Here we go. The importance of Jesus coming in the flesh. So what, bro? You're talking about this doctrine stuff and telling us it's great and Jesus came in the flesh. Like, help me. Help me understand that. 
Why does that matter so much for me? I'm going to try. Here we go. In order, I'll just go ahead and say this. In order for Christ to be your Savior, he had to come in the flesh. So if you sit here this morning with a troubled conscience, if you sit here this morning agreeing with anything that our brother Tommy confessed today, you're sinning, I'm struggling. If you have any of that going on, then you and your conscience are wrestling with how in the world will it go well for me when I stand before God at the end of time? That matters for every day. That matters today. It will matter on Thursday. If Christ did not come, if Jesus did not come in the flesh, truly human, you have no hope of redemption, nor do I. Why? In order to be our representative, in order for Christ to be as we rejoice in all time, in order for him to be the second Adam, in order for him to be our covenant head, he had to be truly human. We in Adam, right, we learn this from Scripture. In Adam, we fell. In Adam, we sinned against God. Adam was our representative. His sin is counted to us. We inherit his corruption. That's one covenant head. The other covenant head in Scripture is Christ. So in Christ, we receive all of his benefits. That only happens, he can only be our covenant head if he takes on our nature. He can't do that for human beings if he too is not a human. So in order for Jesus to accomplish righteousness, to fulfill the law in a way that could be counted to you and me, he had to be truly man. Because God requires of human beings that the law be kept perfectly. See, this is something that we have to really wrestle with too, because so often in the church, we say great things about the cross and the atonement, and that's really good. But when we say, as I've heard said before, justification means it's as though I never sinned. That's wrong. That's wrong. Why? It's incomplete. God requires more than just sinlessness. He requires a positive righteousness. Right? In terms of a keeping of the law, he's very clear. You do these things, you'll live forever. You disobey, you'll face judgment. He requires a keeping of the law, and it had to be done by a human being. And Jesus did that for you and for me. And that's why the law is a happy thing for a Christian. That's why we can look at it and strive to follow it without fear of condemnation. Because it's been perfectly fulfilled. I'm safe. I'm secure. I'm covered in the righteousness of Christ. And now I work to obey in joy, in freedom. None of that is true for you if Christ did not come in the flesh. You and I, we stand condemned under the holy law of God if Christ did not come in the flesh. But the other piece that we've already alluded to some, the sins that you've committed, the bad things you've done, the good things that you've neglected to do, just like me. God is a just God. He's a righteous God. He's a holy God. He deals with evil, period, full stop. It's not a relative scale. He will punish evil perfectly. That should bring relief to you in one sense because we all crave justice. 
in an unjust world. But it will not go well for us before God in our sin. So we needed one who could stand in our place and take the punishment. What is that? What's the punishment that God's law requires for breaking it? It's your life. It's death. It's wrath of God. The pouring out of God's wrath that he would be satisfied, propitiated. So Christ in the atonement did those things. He died the death that you deserve and you in him died to the law. So when Jesus died on the cross, it counts for you, your death. It's as though you've died. The penalty paid. When Christ died, he took the wrath of God. He drained the cup of it to the dregs. There's none left for you because he took it. He could only do that if he came in the flesh. And finally, like we sung of in our last verse of Jerusalem, we sung about these other truths too, but I'm mindful of that last verse today as we sung it, see the empty tomb today, right? Death could not contain him once the servant of the world now in victory reigning and we see him in the new Jerusalem. Well, what's that about? It's about his resurrection. Okay, so you've also got another problem. We've thought about you don't have positive righteousness. He did that. You've sinned. That needs to be dealt with. He did that. You're going to die. You're going to die. Everybody in this room is. And that's not to be morbid or ridiculous. It's honest. I bet many people in this room, if you're real, would acknowledge, yeah, like death is scary. It's on my mind. If it isn't, I'd, that kind of blows my mind. But that's great for you, maybe. that It's not. But we all are headed that direction. We will be put in the ground that we were made to rule over. And something needed to be done about that. And so when Jesus got up from the dead on a Sunday morning and triumphed over the grave and sin and Satan and hell, he did that in our place as a man. So that we too, one day, just like him, will triumph over death and over sin and over hell. That will not happen. You will not live forever with God unless Christ came in the flesh and is now your resurrection. If Jesus did not come in the flesh, if he was and is not truly human, then we have no savior. He did not redeem what he did not take on in terms of our nature. And we are still, therefore, in Adam. That means we're dead in sin. So the gospel depends upon Jesus coming in the flesh, and he has. And I hope that's clear to you, even as we thought about what he accomplished. Righteousness, atonement, resurrection, propitiation of the wrath of God. And the great thing about the good news of Jesus Christ is that it's finished. I know we say this a lot, and we need it every week because we are so prone to think that there has to be something left that I need to do. How you live matters, but not for merit. We rejoice in the grace of God. The grace of God that, as it's said in a song, sings the song of righteousness by blood and not by merit. We don't work to earn 
It really is finished. What do we do? We trust, we receive, we rest, we hope in, we look to Jesus Christ and our Savior. It's the greatest news in the world. It's, it is the safest place in the world to be in Christ because he has accomplished, really has accomplished everything that you need and everything that I need. There is nothing left to do that's necessary. There's a life left to live that will be transformed. There's a life left to live that will be changing where you will be becoming more righteous. Praise God. But everything you need, all the righteousness you need and I need was counted to us the moment we trusted Christ. That's the good news. And that's true because he came in the flesh. He came as a man to save men. Praise be to his name that he does. Received by faith. Just a point of clarity very quickly before I move on to the second second piece here, the second takeaway. This is something that, that I think matters for us because a lot of times we'll talk about faith. We're saved by faith, we'll say. That's a biblical phrase to say saved by faith. It's by faith, not by works. But let's be really clear about what that means. Faith doesn't save anybody. Jesus does. Right? We're not saved by faith. We're saved by Jesus. And faith is the means by which his righteousness, his merit, his work is counted to us. That matters. Let's be precise. It's doctrine, right? But it's good. It's life-giving. A very sweet thought. So I sort of lied to you. I had two more things to say. Forgive me. This is the last thing for real in takeaway number one. Another sweet thing. This is more kind of on the level of experience, but it's not irrelevant. The scripture speaks to it. If Jesus didn't come in the flesh, he cannot sympathize by, or excuse me, he cannot sympathize with us in our weakness. Like the writer of the Hebrews says. Your life is hard a lot of times. You experience suffering. I do too. And it's a very comforting reality to know that God the Son is not unaware of what it's like to hurt. God is not just some like distant, you know, despot, like up in the heavens, just sort of unconcerned and unmoved. And it's like, oh yeah, look at them, they're suffering. That's not at all what God is like. God the Son became a man and knew suffering. He knew suffering to a degree that that we can't comprehend in bearing the wrath of God for sinners. God cares and he knows what it's like. He understands our frame. It's a very sweet thing that isn't true if Christ didn't come in the flesh. Takeaway number two. I'm going to move us on. Here we go. Again, terrible headings. I don't know. That's wrong. They're not terrible. They're not clever. All right. The second one is discernment. Discernment and making distinctions. Okay. Discernment and making distinctions. I hope it was clear where takeaway number one came from in the text that Jesus came in the flesh. But this one, I'm thinking about verse one in particular, where John says, beloved, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits. Test them. Be discerning. Okay, so that's where this comes from. If it's true that false teachers arose as soon as the gospel began to be preached, then it should not surprise us that the gospel has been at various points in history, suppressed and distorted. Like even thinking about the Protestant Reformation should not warp us out of our frames. We should be not surprised that the gospel was suppressed and distorted for centuries. So it's right, because again, I'm speaking to the fact that we've got to make distinctions. We use these labels and like we call ourselves certain 
kinds of theologians and all this kind of stuff, right? And sometimes it rubs people a weird way. It's like, well, I don't want to be labeled as this or that. I'm a Christian. Okay, I get it. But sometimes distinction is necessary for us to distinguish ourselves over and against another position that's wrong. So that's required. We make distinctions between truth and falsehood. We make distinctions between sound doctrine and not so sound doctrine, between good theology and bad theology. We have to. We're encouraged to do that in the text. But then kind of taking this down maybe even more to the street level, this matters a lot for us in this sense. Not everything that looks or sounds spiritual is from God. Not everything that looks or sounds spiritual is from God. Evangelicals, again, broad church context, for a number of reasons are really susceptible to go astray here. Just as we think about even many of our own upbringings in the American church. If it, in the, in the kind of evangelical, broad evangelical world, if it seems spiritual, or if it sounds pious, people eat it up. Oh, it must be good. This is why there's a new craze in evangelicalism like every eight months or every year and a half. There's some new thing that's the thing. You know, we could go back to any number of things. I, I was having a conversation. Joshua, I think you and I were talking about it. You met with a guy the other day. He was like, yeah, he prayed the prayer of Jabez for me. That was a thing. I don't know if anybody remembers that. That's an example of what I'm talking about. So think about it just to kind of discern this a little bit more. Not everything that's spiritual is from God. Evangelicals eat this stuff up. Think about the Christian bookstore. Right? Many people will have seen this week that one of the biggest Christian bookstore chains in the, in the country, in the world, is closing all of its brick and mortar stores. LifeWeb is closing its brick and mortar stores, and they're going to go completely online distribution and sales and whatever. And I saw a lot of stuff on the Internet, reactions to that, as though it's just the worst thing that's ever happened you know, in the history of Christianity. And I was a little bit surprised because I thought, you know, Christian bookstores, man, it's like I go in there and it's, it's everything that I love and everything that I hate under one roof. <laughs> like they've got the, all the memorabilia and almost like the little trinkets. And I always say the precious moments figurines because that's easy to pick on. They're over here and all the self-help stuff's here. And the good theology is like shoved way back in the corner with like seven markdown stickers on it because nobody wants to buy it. Right. Point being, we're having fun, but point being, many things that look and sound spiritual are from hell. That's serious. This is why we're encouraged by the apostles to test the spirits, to test teaching. We are to compare the truth about Christ as revealed in the scripture to anything that we hear. Acts 17, many will know of this text, Acts 17, 10 and 11, Luke writes for us, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. That's described for us, but it's also true that it's held up as a model for us. This is good. It's noble that they would compare what they're hearing to the scriptures. Let me see if this is true. Test the spirits. So our aim here at CBC, we strive to do things according to the truth of God's word. We aim to teach and lead in the light. Like let's do this in the open with lights on and Bibles open. Above all things, 
We seek to guard the message concerning Christ. We seek to herald that. We aim, in other words, to keep the main thing the main thing. Two, because oftentimes when these peripheral things, some of them can be good, some of them bad. When peripheral things, secondary, tertiary things become the emphasis, that's a problem. We aim to use Christ's language even to the church in Ephesus from the book of Revelation. We aim to keep our first love, namely Christ, at the center. We don't want to lose that, right? Preach Christ. So there's a number of ways. I just want to, again, be very open with you guys about where I'm coming from as a pastor when it comes to some of these things. There are a number of ways that we can go off the rails, like eating up stuff that sounds spiritual that is not in the Bible. I saw a tweet this week from a guy that I know, a ministry friend, and he was referencing a pastor friend of his. This tweet is incredibly relevant for what we're talking about here. So, quote, I'm not going to tell it, say names, doesn't matter. Quote, I thought my job as a pastor would focus on getting my church members to encourage one another to do what the Bible commands. Instead, most of my job is keeping my church members from demanding things of each other that the Bible never does. Close quote. A pastor friend. I think that point is very relevant to what we're talking about. There are all kinds of things that we in the church demand of one another that aren't biblical. There are all kinds of things in the church that people demand from one another that are not derived from the scripture. And that's why everything in terms of what we require of one another and how we live life together as a church needs to come from the book. We need to look to scripture and test the teaching and test the spirits. Takeaway number three, I want to move us on. I want to try to do this as succinctly as I can, but I hope this lands on us and lands on you in a way that's encouraging. Takeaway number three, the heading is humility and gratitude. Humility and gratitude. Look at verse six. Words matter and precision matters, right? How things are said. John says, we are from God, meaning the apostles. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. So here's the way it works. You, if you know God, that equals you listen to us. He doesn't say, if you don't listen to us, you're not from God. All right? And I'm going to keep trying to unpack that. He says, if you know God, you listen. It doesn't work the other way. If you don't listen, you don't know God in terms of causal relationships. So this is how the Bible speaks, friends. Just look at the words. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God doesn't listen. Jesus in John chapter 10 says to the Jewish audience that he's speaking to, he says, I did tell you plainly that I'm the Christ and you don't believe. The works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. That's a mind blower. That's John 10, 25 and 26. You can look at it later. He doesn't say you're not part of my flock because you don't believe. He says you don't believe because you're not mine. Right? That's a different relationship. John 8, 47, Jesus says, again, to a Jewish audience, whoever is of God, same language, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you don't hear them is that you are not of God. The fact that you're not of God is why you don't hear. The reason you hear is because you're of God. Acts 13, 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, 
that God had plans to save the nations, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, right? People, you're appointed to eternal life, you believe. Revelation 13, 8, this one's great. This is about the beast, right? Who's going to come. And all who dwell on earth will worship it, the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. That's crazy to us because it's like it's saying whether or not your name is in the book determines whether or not you'll worship the beast. It's like, whoa. So what are we talking about? We're talking about a glorious thing, not a bad thing. We're talking about an awesome thing. We're talking about an encouraging thing, like a put rock under my feet thing. We're talking about something that humbles me and evokes gratitude. It's the thrust of the scripture. Just as John says here, little children, you are from God. You're of God. He's used that language throughout. He makes it clear. Whoever knows God listens to the apostles. Whoever isn't from God doesn't listen. We make decisions and we believe and we wrestle and we do all these things. And the scripture points to something underneath all that. The scripture points to things that have roots in eternity past. The scripture points to the eternal plan of God that existed before the foundation of the world, a plan that will be accomplished. So we're talking about God in his wonderful sovereign grace in how he works in the lives of human beings. With respect to our being from God, verse four, verse six, we can just rejoice over some realities here. If it's true for you, that you're from God and you are believing the apostolic testimony. You are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. One thing is certain, you did not produce that. You did not produce that. Second thing that's true, if you're in Christ today, you could never have earned that. You couldn't have merited it. Third thing that's true, if you're in Christ today, is that you certainly don't deserve it, nor do I. I couldn't have produced it. I could never have earned it. I certainly don't deserve it even now. It reminds me of the hymn that Isaac Watts wrote called How Sweet and Awful is the Place. There's a verse in that hymn that reads this way. This is the kind of humbling piece. Beholding these realities in the scripture will do this to us. Watts writes, why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room? When thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. Why me? Why why did I see Christ for who he is? Why did I turn from sin and trust Jesus? I'm not sure, but I know I didn't do that. God did that. God in his sovereign grace did that. That is good news. That God is the one who worked in you to cause you to trust his son. You made a decision to follow Jesus that's real. And you made that decision because God in eternity past made a decision for you. We make choices and we choose what we choose because of God's sovereign grace. I don't deserve to be in Christ, but God, you've done it. And I thank you. That's the humility piece. And gratitude. Number four, a closing thought. In sort of line with John's tone and tenor of this whole letter, and I think the whole paragraph. Number four is security and comfort. 
Takeaway number four, security and comfort. Look again at verse four. Little children, you're from God and you have overcome them, those who have the spirit of the Antichrist. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. God is greater than Satan. You don't think that's practical? (laughs) It is. God reigns and you're his. The spirit of the Antichrist is at work in the world. That's true. Don't be surprised, John's saying, when people believe false teachers. Don't be surprised when people have no interest in Jesus. Don't be unsettled either. Don't be afraid. Take comfort. Nothing strange is happening, right? The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. God is greater than all, and he's got this. More than that, he's got you. And so the fact, as we've just been considering, that you believe in Jesus Christ, the fact that you believe that he is the redeemer, and the fact that you believe that he came in the flesh is evidence that God has you. So take that to heart. If you believe that Christ came in the flesh, you believe that he's the Christ and you're trusting him, that is exhibit A, that God has you. No matter what's going on in your life, sickness, heartbreak, tough week at the office, you name it, no matter what's going on in your life, he's got you. You are of God. You're from God, right? No matter what your circumstances, he's got you. No matter what kind of crazy stuff happens around you, even in the church, even in the church, like you can get wounded and even if there are, you know, God forbid, people that leave CBC at points and it's painful, right? God's got you. No matter how people have wounded you or abandoned you, trust the Lord because he's greater than all and he's got you. That's comfort. That's security. I quoted Jesus earlier from John 10. You don't believe because you're not part of my flock. The next verse, John 10, 27. He says this, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. I know them. And they follow me. That's that's remarkable. I mean, like, think about those words. My sheep, they hear me. They hear me because they're mine. I know them and they follow me. He calls his own sheep out by name, he says earlier in John 10. Then he goes on. The next verse, I give them eternal life. I give them. It's a gift. I give it to them. And they will never perish, ever. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So Christ's words to you this morning, beloved, in the spirit of what John is writing. You are of God. You're from God. You will overcome. Christ says to you, I know you. I know you. You have heard my voice. I've got you. You're safe. Thanks be to God for our Redeemer who came in the flesh to accomplish righteousness and atonement and propitiation and resurrection. Praise be to God for Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you now, still in great need of you.
still in great need of your spirit to work in us, for your spirit to take the preaching of your word and drive it into our hearts and cause your word to do its work. So we pray that would happen. We pray for us that you would be working in us to comfort us, that you would be working in us to assure us that we are of you and that in you we will overcome. We pray for us now as we come to the table that you would be doing that work of assuring us as we come together to partake of what Christ has done. We pray that we would rejoice together at the finished work of Jesus Christ that's counted to us. We pray that we would be humbled by what Christ has done. We pray that we would live always before you in humility and gratitude. We pray that you would continue to stir us up in love to you and in love for one another. And we pray that we would walk in the good works that you have prepared for us. We thank you so much for your son and for what you have done for us in him. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.